I want to go ahead and invite you to turn to Psalm 72 this morning. Shaka mentioned that's where we're going to be. Psalm 72, I'm sorry to say, this is almost the last week in our series to the Psalms. I'm going to miss the Psalms. I mean, not that the Psalms are going anywhere. Of course, we're going to continue to read them, and we'll be bringing them back around in our preaching series here and there over the years. But uh, I've loved the time that we've shared together since the beginning of the, of, or actually the early, I guess the middle of the summer is when we switched over to the Psalm series, and I'm sorry to see it come to an end, but uh, it is. We're going to have a time today in Psalm 72. Next week, we have a sort of unusual service planned, a Christmas Eve worship service that's family style, lots of kids, aka a zoo in here. It's going to be awesome. We'll be mostly singing and readings through the Christmas story together. We'll spend about five minutes or so in Psalm 132 to try to focus that time. And then we'll come back and finish up the series in Psalm 23. Bill Hearman will be preaching from on, uh, on January, or excuse me, December 31st. And then in the new year, we come back to a study of John's letters. So 1 John will ring in the new year here at Trinity uh, in January. So hopefully you'll be with us then for that. I, um, I'm sorry to see the Psalm series end, but we can't let it end without talking about kings. The reason is that it's all through the Psalms, just like it's all through our celebrations of Christmas, all through the songs we just sang together leading up to this sermon. Did you guys notice how often these songs talk about kings? I mean, these were sort of chosen for today because the psalm is about a king, but they're also really familiar Christmas songs you expect to sing at any Christmas-oriented service that you're, that, that you're attending. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king, angels from the realms of glory. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. And then later on, we'll sing O Holy Night. Same thing comes all through all, O come all ye faithful, born the king of angels. It's, it's all over Christmas songs and, and it's all over the Psalms too. And I don't know about you, but sometimes this, this focus on kingship has been hard for me to connect with. I, it, it, I don't often find myself feeling anything when I come across a reference to a king in a song or in a text, it doesn't evoke something in me, some sense of need or of, of excitement, of, of, of great gratitude in the way that I want it to. I don't know why that is. Maybe I'm too patriotic for that. As a good American, I don't do kings. Maybe it's the kings I know from history. I have often been corrupt, brutal, disgusting. The ones that had power. And the kings I look around and see now, I mean, they're, they're maybe more friendly. They're friendly enough, but they're nothing more than symbols. They're influential in the way that the Kardashians are influential, but not necessarily influential the way the Tudors were. So the model, as I've seen it, I think is broken. I just haven't seen what a king is meant to be, maybe, in my own experience. And so it's hard for me when I read through the Psalms and I get to these celebrations of Jesus or, or, or of the coming king that we know to be Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one. Sometimes I trip up. I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience. Uh, but the Psalms will be difficult to fully appreciate if you can't appreciate why you need a king. Because that theme comes up over and over. We intentionally save for this time in our series, for this time in our calendar year, a a time to focus on what are known as the royal psalms. There's a bunch of them. Psalms that focus on Israel's king, either the king that they already had or more likely the king that's still to come, one they were looking for, the one that they were hanging their hopes on. If that's a tough thing for you to, uh, to, to savor, then the psalms will be tough for you to enjoy. 
So we want to spend some time this morning trying to uncover why this theme is so important for the lives we're living now. One of the things we've said from the very beginning, pull the, pulling language from C.S. Lewis and his study of the Psalms, is that a lot of times the Psalms do, like, they use language and have ideas that just don't immediately connect with us. We don't see why they should be good news, why we should celebrate it. And Lewis says, it, it, just like if you're hunting, where there's cover, you look for game. Sometimes it's the areas that seem most cloudy, least clear to us, that have the most important and impactful uh, truth for us to discover and to bring into our relationships with him. So what I want to do this morning is to help you appreciate the Psalms, the celebration of Christmas as a Christian, and ultimately your relationship with Jesus as, as a king, one whose authority brings peace and flourishing to your life if you'll trust your life to him. We're going to do that by looking at Psalm 72. Last week we looked at Psalm 2, which was the the big opening of this theme throughout the Psalms. It's put at the introduction to the whole book because the, the person who collected all the Psalms wanted you to know you're going to read and celebrate kings a lot from here on to the end of this collection. So he put it right at the beginning to, to flag that. Psalm 72 sounds a lot like Psalm 2. It pulls a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same images. That's one of the reasons we wanted to go from one to the next. But it takes us in a slightly different direction. So Psalm 2, if you weren't here last week, you can can listen to a sermon about Psalm 2 last week. We talked about the importance from that psalm of a coming king who would crush all evil, who would destroy once and for all, all the injustice that stands up against the peace that God himself promised to bring in on earth. That king was a king who comes as a conqueror. Psalm 72, so think of that as a negative image, what the king has to destroy to establish what God has promised. Then think of Psalm 72 as a more positive image. Here's what the king will establish to make good on all that he's promised. This is a psalm, Psalm 72, one writer put it, is like the light at the end of a tunnel. It's looking through the hopes of Israel formed over the years to what's still to come and describes both what this king will, will do but also what he'll be like. Another way to think about Psalm 72 is as a kind of job description. If you've ever applied for a job, you notice most job descriptions that you'll read will come with not just a description of the high level, what the organization is like, what have you, but also two categories of stuff that'll be on that job description. One, you'll read about the kind of responsibilities that come with this job. If you want this job, here's what you'll be doing. This psalm describes what kind of responsibilities a king has. What's the king's function? And then the other thing you'll see on a job description is qualifications. If you want to fulfill these responsibilities, if you think this is a job you can do, here's what will need to be true of you. This psalm gives us the qualifications of the king. For a king to do what this king is supposed to do, here's what that king will have to be like. So that's what we want to look at this morning. Why you need a righteous king first. That's the sort of responsibilities, what a king is meant to do for his people. Why you need one this morning, whether you realized it coming in here or not. And then we'll look at, at, at what sort of king we need. At, at how a, what a righteous king looks like, how the psalm describes him, his character. And then we'll look at the, at the very end about what it looks like to respond to this kind of king, to serve him as your own king. I want to begin by reading the whole thing. It's not that long, but, um, but it, is, uh, it, it is pretty substantial. So I'm going to read it nice and slow, try to help you see, the, draw out some of the meaning as I read it, and then we're going to go through it back uh, line by line and walk through it together and try to pull it out even more deeply for each other. I want you to please stand with me, if you will, in honor of God's word, just a way of celebrating him and his importance of what he said to us with our bodies as we stand. I'm going to read God's word to us from Psalm 72. 
of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoke for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want us to look, as I mentioned, I want us to look this morning at why we need a righteous king, what a righteous king looks like, and how we can serve the righteous king. Starting with first seven verses, they point us to what a king actually does. Think about this as the list of responsibilities for this job, what Israel was looking for, what they wanted, and what God was promising to give them. The psalm, maybe you notice this, it opens as a prayer. It's a prayer to God to give justice and righteousness to the king, knowing that, that those gifts are gifts. Right? These are not accomplishments of any king. No king will be righteous as they need to be or just as they need to be if God doesn't give them this gift. So it starts as a prayer, but then it gets into why these gifts are, are, matter so much. Think of justice as, as behaving fairly, as deciding rightly for the people. Think of righteousness as always doing what's right. Right ordering of society, a right aim for the one who's in power. 
using his power for good in the way that it's meant to be used. So, so those are the gifts that, that, that the psalmist prays that God will give to his king. And then you, then you see, starting in verse 2, why he needs them. Because it's his job to judge the people with righteousness, to judge the poor with justice. It's his job to defend the cause of the poor of the people. It's his job to give deliverance to the children of the needy, not to the one he might stand to gain something from. It's his job to crush the oppressor, not to become one of the oppressors himself. He's going to need justice and righteousness to do what he's called to do. And then at the middle, right in the middle of that list of responsibilities, in verse 3, we get an image for what a king is meant to do, what his responsibility is. That, that's the main thing I want you to take from this psalm. It comes up several different times in the psalm. It, it, it's not one of those psalms that moves from one idea to another idea to another idea, and then it's over. It moves in and out, in and out of some of the same themes. And one that comes up over and over, I think is a great summary of what a king is meant to do for his people in the, in the words, in terms of the Bible, comes out in verse 3. It's the image of prosperity or peace. Think wholeness security. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Righteousness leads to peace. Prosperity. The word prosperity here in my translation is often used for for peace or wholeness. Often you've heard the Hebrew term shalom is what's being used there and it's much bigger than just an absence of war. It's a life that's flourishing. A people whose, whose lives are what God wanted them to be apart from the effects of sin and sorrow. That central image comes through again and again. It's the heart of what a king is meant to do. Look at it in verses 6 and 7. May he, the king, be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Why? So that in his days the righteous may flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The king, his job is to be like rain to grass. If you want the grass to grow, it needs to be nourished. He is to be like, like soil in which the grass is planted that nourishes it and gives it growth. Look at, look at verse 16. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. Why? So that may the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. You see what he keeps coming back to over and over again is people blossoming, flourishing, thriving, living lives of happiness, peace, and security. The king's job, a righteous king's job, is to be the environment in which the people may blossom like the grass of the field. Their wholeness, their peace and security is what he's giving his life to. And he, the righteous king, is the key. He is the soil where their prosperity grows. He is the rain that waters their prosperity. He creates the space for his people to thrive. Think of a righteous king as a kind of environment in which people thrive and grow. Maybe that is not what you think of when you think about a person who has power over others. I mean, a lot of times in our experience, power is very self-serving. Sometimes power exploits, actually. Having power is the excuse you need to take from those who can't resist you. To, to capitalize on the despair of other people who are weaker and, and take whatever little bit they have and add it to what you have. Sometimes power exploits. And the Bible is, is really honest about that. When prophets, one of their main themes is coming back over and over again to the way that the Israel's kings, even Israel's kings, 
abuse their people, use their power to pull from their people rather than to invest in their people, use their power as an excuse for building their own platforms for life that they wanted on their terms rather than creating an environment where other people can thrive and grow. The Bible's honest about the dangers of power. And when you see the truth, when you've experienced it in your own life or just paid attention to what's going on around the world or look carefully at what happens in history, when powerful people get power, you've seen how often it corrupts. Sometimes you can come to believe that we'd be better off if, if nobody had any power that anyone else doesn't have. If we just sort of level the playing field so that everyone has an equal amount of power, so that no one outside of me can tell me who or what to be. That, that, that would actually protect us. That we'd be safer. That that's the way to being free and flourishing. And I'd say, if that's what you think about where flourishing human lives come from, from freedom and autonomy, then I'd say you're almost right. Almost right. Almost right in a way that, though that's, that's deadly and dangerous. The reason it's almost right that, that, that removing power from the hands of corrupt and exploitative people is the way to, to, to flourishing is that we are told in the scriptures to, to resist that kind of authority, to run from it, to oppose it where you can. But it's, it's almost right in a way that's dangerous because the Bible is just as consistently clear that you were made to depend on an authority outside of yourself, on a power that stands over you and has the right to command you, on a king whose righteous rule creates the environment in which your life can flourish. The Bible says this all through its pages and as clearly as possible right here in Psalm 72. We weren't made to be autonomous, to be okay on our own to be rulers of our own lives. We can't thrive like that any more than grass can thrive without rain or soil. Our flourishing depends on the environment where we live, where we're planted, just like the grass. And that environment is set by a righteous king, one who has power, but who uses it correctly. That's the first thing you need to take from Psalm 72. It, it's a theme that comes in and out, in and out of all the psalm from beginning to end. You need a righteous king because your life and its thriving and its flourishing depends on an authority that's used over you properly, not to abuse you, but to equip you, but to cultivate you, to invest in you so that you can thrive. That's the message, but it raises the question. I mean, because we're living in the real world, right? We've seen what power often does. It doesn't often create an environment for other people to flourish. Often it suppresses people. It's like starving them rather than feeding them. It's like a drought rather than, than, uh, than, than rain on the, on the mown grass, like Psalm 72 says it is. That has not, Psalm 72 has not yet been our experience. What kind of king would it take for us to enjoy the kind of flourishing and thriving that Psalm 72 puts in front of us. That's the question we're meant to be asking, I think, by this point in the psalm. Who could pull this off? Who could have power without corruption, without exploitation? What kind of qualifications would that king need to do the responsibilities of this job? That picture starts to come out in verse 8. The next verses give us the qualifications for the job that gets laid out in the first seven verses and that comes back up again a couple other times throughout the psalm. 
Verse 8 starts out with another prayer, a prayer that this kingdom, this king's kingdom would spread everywhere. It's just using images that would have been familiar to the people that were first reading it about the whole world. So from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, from, uh, then, then he starts to describe Tarshish, Sheba, Sheba, and Seba. He's looking in every direction and saying, from every direction, let them bring tribute. We want this king's reign to spread over the whole earth so that there's not a, a, a square inch of it that isn't submitted to him. It's a prayer for an absolute and unchallenged and unending kingdom of peace and safety and security. And it begins with all these nations from every direction bringing him tribute. And I'll be honest, at first, you read these verses about this tribute that they're bringing. At first, it looks brutal. I mean, this image of enemies bowing down before him, licking the dust, speaks for itself, doesn't it? And it puts a certain spin on all this tribute, on all these desert tribes that are flocking to him and these kings that are bringing their best and brightest to him, bowing down to serve him. It sounds a lot like what Israel experienced when other more powerful empires came into their land demanding tribute from them see those empires were used to getting tribute like this but you know how they got it they got it through through reputations for brutality that spread all over that part of the world I, uh, I don't do this right now but when you get home if you want an extra credit assignment you can google Assyrian empire brutality or something like that the empire that conquered Israel, the Assyrians. We have a lot of texts describing what their reign was like. We have words from their kings themselves and what they were going for as they spread throughout that ancient time. And they'll tell you, point blank, what they did, the kinds of tortures that they used on victims, the kinds of ways they devised for killing their enemies, for putting their bodies on display, for making sure their name rang out throughout that world it will take your breath away. You, you read some of the things that they did. You can even see images describing these scenes of conquest that, are, that were actually carved into the walls of their palaces. We have these now in museums around the world. You can see pictures of people bringing them tribute next to pictures of the way that they tortured their victims to make sure that when they came into a new land, they didn't have anybody fighting them anymore. By the end of this empire, its reign was spreading by people like this licking the dust when they heard the Assyrians were on their doorstep, they brought out their best and their brightest and said, please, here, take what you want. Don't hurt me. The Assyrians spread their kingdom through knee-knocking and stomach-emptying and dust-licking fear from the smaller tribes and nations they came to conquer. But that is not how this king spreads his reign. It looks like that's where we're headed. I think a first-time reader would have had those images in his mind as he's reading about these tributes that kings are bringing to this king from all over the world. They would be thinking, they're terrified of him. What must this king have done to earn a reputation like this? That's what you'd be thinking. But then in verse 12, at the heart of this psalm, the author puts it as plainly as he possibly can. He gives us the reason people are bringing him tribute. It starts with a four. It's a conclusion. They're bringing him tribute. All kings falling down before him. All nations serving him for the reason they come is that he delivers the needy when he calls. 
They come because the poor are delivered by him, those who have no helper. They come to him and fall down. They serve him with joy because he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves their lives. They come not because they are afraid of his violence, not because they've heard rumors ringing out about his oppression, but because from oppression and violence, he redeems the life of the needy. They come not because they, are, they fear to have their blood shed. They come because their blood is precious in his sight. They come not because they're prodded like cattle with an electric cattle prod. They come because, as one put it, they're drawn by a magnet. They come not from fear, but from love. This is what a righteous king looks like. This is the king you need. The kind of king that's worth trusting with your life. This kind of king is the only way to know genuine peace, lasting, flourishing, inside and out. You need a king that hears you when you call. Almost like he was their servant and not the other way around. We're told the nations come to serve him, but then we're told that when the needy calls, he's on it as if he's their, their servant. You need one who will help one who has no one else to turn to. Someone who sees needs and has compassion. Someone with the power to redeem lives that have gone off the rails, either from poor choices or from abuse from other people. You need to submit your life to one who will see your life as precious. Not dispensable. His treasure. The nations are coming to this ruler because they want him. No one's ever seen a king like this before. And they didn't see this king with David. They didn't see him with Solomon, whose name is attached to this psalm. No, after Solomon is long gone, the rulers come to Solomon's successor and say, hey, can you please do something? Your father's yoke was heavy, 1 Kings 12. They come begging for somebody to, to lighten the load Solomon had put on them. This king never showed up in Israel's experience. But when Jesus was born, when the angels told Mary that, that, that your son will sit on David's throne, when they announced the same news to the shepherds, when Jesus took up his public ministry, this was the kingship he had in mind. Luke records his opening words. When he began his public ministry, he took up a scroll. It says that when he walked into a synagogue one day, they handed him the scroll from Isaiah, like Shaka read from earlier this morning. But one chapter earlier than what Shaka read from, Jesus turns to Isaiah chapter 61, which sounds almost exactly like Psalm 72. And that's no coincidence. And Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the king you've been waiting for is here. You can trust me. 
Of Solomon, it was said, he made our yoke heavy. Somebody get this yoke off of our necks. The king who was meant to create a place where we could thrive has just used us for his own purposes. And Jesus says to them, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. I'll carry it for you and you will find rest for your souls. Psalm 72 is describing for us the Savior that the angels announced at Jesus' birth and that the rest of the Gospels describe to us in story form. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Ever since his birth, witnessed by the poor and the needy and the weak, his kingdom has been spreading. Not through conquest, In fact, every attempt Christians have made to put their own power behind the power of God's word has been disastrous. It's been spreading despite the power used on its behalf by Christians throughout church history. It's been spreading through the power of the word which goes out from weak people who have nothing more than words to say. It's been spreading to weak people who hear its message and hear in in, in its promise, one who's for them as they are. Through this gospel word spreading around the world, people from tribes and nations have been hearing about his love. They've been hearing about this one who listens to them, this one who, in, in whose sight their blood is precious, and they've been coming. Even when they have nothing else in life, they've been coming to this message. They've been rallying to it, embracing it, and finding its peace in their own lives. And this news has made it here to you this morning. This news that's been ringing out says Jesus' birth has made it here right now, this morning, to you in this room with an opportunity. An opportunity for you to bow as the nations have done. For you to worship and to serve this king. An opportunity for you to know the flourishing that this psalm talks about. A life that thrives no matter what's going on, what's swirling around you. A life that can thrive like well-watered grass in the springtime. If you'll live your life under this righteous king. So how? I want to finish. I want to finish by pointing you to some things we can pull from this psalm that help you see how you can serve this righteous king. I want to point you to three things. We could could find a lot more, but here are three that I think are absolutely essential for you this morning, especially if you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to serving this king. Here's what you need to know. You don't need to know anything more than what I'm going to tell you now. Three things. First, to serve this righteous king, it's got to start with honesty about yourself. Honesty about yourself. That's the place to start. You've got to remember what this psalm has already told us. It is the weak and the poor and the needy that he saves. It is their lives that he redeems. He has not come for those who have strength of their own. You have to find your place there with the needy. Because no matter how well padded your bank account must be, you are actually needy. Recognize it or not, you have nothing that is yours to keep. You have nothing that will survive you. You have no hope for redeeming your life, for giving it any meaning or value. Unless there is someone else who can establish your life for you, 
You got to admit at the beginning, you got to start with honesty and know that I am not a king, but a beggar. I'm doing a terrible job ruling my life. I admit it. I'm needy. I'm poor. I am weak. So deliver me. Help me. Just pull out these words from, from verse 12 to 14. Deliver me. Help me. Have pity on me. Save me. Redeem me. It starts with honesty. If you're not among the weak, you won't know this king's power in your life. So start there. But then secondly, how do you serve this righteous king? Well, really, it's, it's a, about trusting Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean. I know that's a, a familiar phrase and it can sometimes just wash right over you. But let me tell you what that means. Knowing that Jesus is a king, one with authority, one who, who has the, the right to command you, to tell you the difference between what is good and what isn't, to make the difference between what you pursue and what you don't. He has that kind of authority over you. So what does it look like to trust in a king who has that kind of authority over you? I think that it starts by recognizing who you're dealing with. You don't have to fear this king. You don't have to hide your weaknesses from him. All too often in our experience, the powers that be use their power. We've said that already. They will use their power to take whatever the weak, whatever little bit the weak already have and make it their own. They will look on the losers of the world and shame them. They will distance themselves from those who seem too weak to be worthy of their time and attention. That's what the powers that be in our experience will do. But this is not, this, this king, he is not like that. Far from shaming the weak, he promises to give the weak glory. He empties himself of his own glory that he had for all of eternity on a level we will never be able to imagine. He just gives it up so that he can give it to them. Far from pulling back from the losers and saying, that's not me, I'm not with them, he actually draws down to their level, takes on a body, a weak and decaying, needy body, just like theirs, so that he can place themselves among them and lead them to something more. This is the kind of king you're dealing with. The kind of king who took on the manger as his bed. And in that, in that coming, as just a little tiny defenseless baby, he was given us only the faintest shadow of the kind of vulnerability he was going to accept later. Not just accept, but invite. Not just be willing to take on, but seek out a vulnerability to nails and spears and swords, to the whip, to the crown of thorns. He opened himself up by taking on a body that could be killed. Because this king wants to redeem your life. That's who you're dealing with. This is the salvation you're invited to trust this morning. A crucified king reigning over you as the only path to life, a life that that flourishes, that knows peace now and forever. So what you need to know about submitting to this king is that it's, it's more like trusting him. Absolutely, it involves obedience. Absolutely, it means making choices differently than you would if this king were not in your life. Absolutely, it means you've got to resign from your position as king over your life, as the one who knows best what you need, as the one who knows how to get from A to B to Z in your life. You've got to resign that post and give it up forever. That's true. 
But that obedience to this kind of king, it just comes as an expression of trust in him, of knowing he knows better than I do about what I need. Uh, the, The kind of submission that this king demands is a submission that says, I want whatever you want for my life. It's the kind of submission that you, that you have before a, a great chef who you trust knows more about, about what makes for good food than you do. So you just put yourself in their hands and you say, you surprise me. Give me what will help me to enjoy this meal most. I resign my position of knowing most about how to combine these flavors and these elements. I'll take what you give me because I trust you. It's that kind of submission to this king this morning that will lead to flourishing in your life. Trust him because of what kind of character he has. He hears you. He pays attention to you. Your life is precious to him. Why wouldn't you just give it up? Why not give it up to this king? A submission not of fear, friends, but of love. Not bending the knee to a sword, but giving yourself to the pull of this magnet that draws you in by its beauty. What does it look like to serve this righteous king? Well, you've got to be honest about yourself. You've got to resign that place as king of your life. You are among the needy. Your life will not thrive with you and in command. You start there. Then you trust, you submit to this king who is worthy of that trust. Under his reign, your life will thrive. You accept that through trust. And then finally, you follow his lead. Serving this righteous king starts by just trusting in him, but it ends by wanting what he wants, by leaning into what he calls you to, by following the example he sets for you. Did you notice that this, this psalm ends with a prayer? Long may he live, the psalm prays. May prayer be made for him continually. Blessings invoked for him all the day. It's a prayer that his name would go on forever. That, his, that he would be famous over all the world as long as the sun endures. It's a prayer that all the nations everywhere would know who he is and want to worship him and come and bow before him out of, out of love and not fear. It's a prayer that God would get the credit God deserves as the one and only one who does wondrous things. It's a prayer that the whole earth would be full of his glory. That's what we're meant to pray. So following this king, first of all, now, while we wait for his return, just means leaning into that life of prayer. It's not a, not a coincidence that echoing psalms like this one, Jesus, when he teaches his friends how to pray, begins with the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that now. We pray that this reign, that this ruler would be known and loved and embraced all over the surface of the globe. It starts with prayer, but it doesn't stop there. While we pray for his return, pray that he comes quickly. In the meantime, while we wait for him, we, we try to reflect something of his love in our lives. It's that simple. The order matters. You try to start acting like this king in order to get this king to care about you. And all of a sudden, you've just asserted yourself. You've just tried to make him owe you. In other words, you've left your spot as the weak or the needy or the beggar or the helpless whose life needs to be redeemed by someone else. And you've turned into the one with negotiating power. I've got a chip to play. Look at all the weak that I served in your name. So now, why don't you give to me? So you don't want that. Starts by honesty. I have nothing. It, it next moves to trust. You're everything or I am nothing. I trust my life to you. But then it does move because of love 
into lives that, that, that reflect something of Jesus' posture towards those who have nowhere else to turn, towards those who have no one to listen to them, those whose lives seem dispensable, not precious. To follow the lead of this king is to be an agent of his peace. To befriend those in need with all sorts of need. The the abused, the depressed, the impoverished. And we need to know that that for this king to minister to the needy meant he had to become needy himself. He had to take on a sacrifice even greater than theirs. And when we take up what he set in front of us, when we try to follow his lead and minister to needy people, then we have to be ready to take on needs that aren't our own and make them our own. We have to be ready to, to bear burdens and sorrows that it would some ways be easier to protect your life from, to involve yourself in stressful situations that you can't control or necessarily see through to the end. But you can't belong to this king with his character and insulate yourselves from the needs of the weak and the hurting and the desperate. It's just what his citizens do. So where can you? Friend, where do you need to be encouraged to keep walking the road that you're on even though it's wearing you out? Where do you need to be encouraged to take up a friendship you've been keeping distance from because it brings too much pain into your life? Where do you need to be encouraged to to see someone who's been ostracized, someone who doesn't have people, and pursue them even though you can't see where it'll go? This is not a new law to fulfill, friends. This is an opportunity to be agents of a peace that is promised to us as a gift that is coming as surely as Jesus has already been born and that will one day spread over every inch of this globe when the whole earth will be full of his glory. So be encouraged to take it up with confidence and not with fear. Father, we want to be faithful witnesses to your goodness and your compassion, to your power to redeem, not ours. We know that anything good that will come out of our lives will come through your grace, though. So our posture is to pray that your kingdom would spread in our hearts that your qualifications will become ours as your spirit changes us to look more and more like Jesus. That we would love what you love. That we would share your willingness to open yourself up to pain even when it would be easier not to. And that we'd be driven in this work, Father, not by fear or by pride, but only by love a love for you, a love that's, that's fueled by your goodness and presence in our lives and a love for other people because you love them. We want to devote our lives to the things that are precious to you. 
We want those treasures to be ours. And I pray that you would do that work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.